Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Ask Shane Anything. There's yet again another big game to play for this weekend, so I appreciate it if you've taken some time away from Assassin's Creed Mirage to watch this show. Um, I love doing this show. You guys ask great questions every week, but it does happen because some of you are pledging at $7 or more per month at that Ask Shane tier, because so many of you guys do that, it compels me to keep doing this show. Plus, I just love doing it. Once again, we have an awesome collection of great questions from you guys. Let's get straight to them. Our first question this week comes from Funboy. Hey Shane, I'm a big fan of Knockout City. Interesting. The EA Originals dodgeball game that went offline earlier this year. Since then, the developers have given the software to the community and private service has sprouted up so fans can keep playing. Are there other examples of games that died only to be kept alive by fans? Okay, I'll admit that I had to pause the recording of this show to think about this for a minute. Because when I first heard your question, I really thought that I would be able to come up with a bunch of instances like right away. And that wasn't the case. And in fact, I've only really come up with two. I really thought there were a lot more and there probably are. I'm guessing there are a ton of obscure games that this has happened to or with. Um, But for me, the only two that I can really remember, and this is funny because I hadn't really thought about this game for years until Pactor mentioned it in a recent episode of Pactor Factor. And now here it comes up again But that game is Evolve. I had completely forgotten that that asymmetrical shooter was kind of like the litmus test for games as a service and how they would work. It was one of the first like cooperative third person shooters, like three on one side, one on the other. One person played the monster, the other three tried to kill the monster and trap it and blah, blah, blah. It was a cool idea and people were really into it, but ultimately it was doomed by its microtransactions and how it wanted to squeeze money out of the people who bought it after they had paid basically full price for a game before that. So it was one of those games that kind of tested the waters for what players and consumers were willing to accept from games as a service. And therefore it basically died because there were just so many mistakes made there. Now, since then, fans have kept that game alive by playing on their own servers. And again, I don't think most people hated Evolve as a game. They hated the scummy monetization in the game. So that's one of them that I remember off the top of my head is Evolve. It's still out there. People can still play it. But again, it's only on fan servers. And then another one goes back way further. And that is Fantasy Star Online for GameCube. Uh, If you remember, the GameCube had a network adapter that you could buy. And then it would snap into the bottom of the GameCube. Now, ultimately, there were like hardly any games that supported it. There was like, I think... I think Mario Kart Double Dash had some kind of a crazy LAN party feature that you could use it for, and then Fantasy Star Online. Well, once Sega took down the servers for Fantasy Star Online, fans were like, no, 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 we're going to set up our own, and they did, and those servers are still live today. Right now, you can play Fantasy Star Online on GameCube because the fans kept it alive, and I'll admit I was a huge PSO fan. I played it on the Dreamcast, though. By the time it came to GameCube and other consoles, I had kind of already played it for like 400 hours and didn't care that much. Um, And I will also admit that I am one of the suckers that bought the GameCube network adapter. And I don't even know if I ever even used it. It still snapped into the bottom of my GameCube sitting there. I don't know if an Ethernet cable was ever plugged into it, honestly. But uh, thank God that they did release it because fans of PSO have managed to keep that game alive. But I guess what I would say overall is that I'm surprised that I can't think of more games that the fans have kept alive. Now, I'm shocked that there are enough fans of Knockout City 
that they managed to you know set up their own servers and it's cool that the developers gave up the source code and let you guys let you guys do it I'm shocked that that is one of the games that it's happened with, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is something that's far more common going forward because there are so many games as a service that are launching and failing. And once they fail, it's like, what do you do with them? You've still probably built this community of players who enjoys the game. You're not going to be able to squeeze any more money out of them. What do you do? I hope that more publishers and developers will do exactly what happened with Knockout City. So that's a really cool story. Thank you for sharing it. And it's not very common in the past, but I do think it will be way more common in the future. Next up, we have a question from Kevin Holdsworth. In my last job, I made a friend who was from Philly. We knew this because he would always say, I'm from Philly, whenever the slightest connection could be made. I have another friend who is married to a Philly girl. No, I never asked her where she was from as I never had to. She mentioned she is from Philly every time my girlfriend and I get together with them. Why do people from Philly love telling people they are from Philly? Okay, the first thing I'm gonna say about this is technically I'm not from Philly originally. Like I lived there for like seven years, uh, but I moved there to go to college. Um, so I know Philly really well and all my friends are from Philly. They were born and raised there. And so I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, why does this happen? Uh, why it happens is because people from Philly, they're either extremely proud to be from Philly or they have an inferiority complex about Philadelphia. And those are kind of the two people that I discovered having lived there for a really long time. There's either people that were born there and lived in like Center City in the downtown area and they're just like obsessed with Philly. Everything Philly, 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 Philly. And then you have the people who were a little more realistic in the 80s and 90s when Philly was really on its knees. And that's, I went to school there in the 90s. Um, late 90s, and it had started to get better when I was there, but it was just awful. Like, I went to Temple, which is in North Philadelphia. I, look, I've been to Compton here. I've been to all these neighborhoods in L.A. that are supposed to be terrible. None of them are even close to North Philly. North Philly, is, to me, is the craziest, most dangerous neighborhood I've ever seen. I've had, I can't even go through all the stuff that happened to me while I lived there. I My car was broken into 20 times. My roommate, my college roommate, we had an apartment right off Temple's campus, went to the ATM across the street and was mugged and killed for $40. Um, I was playing games with my one buddy in his apartment one night. We heard a bunch of gunshots. We opened the door and there's somebody dying on our stoop. The cops had shot him. The cop walked up, put his foot on the guy's neck as he was heaving. The guy was dying. He was going, <laughs> and the cop walks up, puts his foot on his neck and says, go the F inside. And we went the F inside. Um, I watched people run out of the neighborhood and steal people's backpacks off their backs, walk into class at Temple. Um, there are open drug markets in North Philadelphia where literally you just drive down the street and people just come out and just sell drugs openly. It's, it's crazy. I was driving to school one day and I stopped at a red light. I hear knock, knock on my, my uh, car window. I look over and I roll it down. There's a guy standing there. I roll it down and he just cold cocks me in the face hits me, knocks my sunglasses all the way across the other side of the car. They hit the other window and shatter. And he looks at me and he goes, my kid was in the car. Still to this day, I have no idea what he's talking about. I didn't run a red light. I didn't do anything dangerous or illegal. He just punched me in the face. And then I went to school at Temple. I had an exam and my professor was like, you're taking the exam, even though my whole side of my face was swollen. So Philly is insane. At least back then it was insane. And I think a lot of people knew it. It was really dirty. It was overrun with graffiti. And I think a lot of people developed defense mechanisms around Philly during that time. I think a lot of my friends did, honestly. 
Even though this horrible stuff was happening to us, they still tried to defend Philly. And so I think that's a big part of it. And I think that really the maybe the biggest part of it is people in Philly know that it's a rough and tumble city. And I think there's a certain level of pride if you've survived the streets of Philadelphia. I mean, I'm street smart AF because of Philadelphia. I saw crazy stuff daily in that city. And so I think that's part of it. I think they know that at least in the past, Philadelphia was really tough. And there's a level of pride having lived there and survived there. I don't really look at it that way. I think in some ways I feel stupid for staying there as long as I did with all the crime that was going on now. Today, Philly is completely different. It is way safer. For example, Temple's campus at night now, if you go there, it's like daylight. There's so many lights, it's literally like daylight, even at four in the morning. So they've improved Philadelphia in so many ways. It's so much better. But if you ask me why people always say, I'm from Philly, I'm from Philly, I'm from Philly, that's why. Next up, we have a question from Khalib Twalai. What's the most interesting console or peripheral gimmick you've ever tried, either that you took seriously or that was just purely ridiculous? Well, Khalib, first of all, I would just say that the vast majority of peripherals and stuff, they are gimmicky and most of them are trash. And I have really tried them all. Um, Back when I worked at Game Trailers, I worked at G4, there was just constantly people coming in trying to show us goofy peripherals. And we made those appointments because it makes for good television. So putting on like a vest that impacts you when you get shot in a first person shooter, that's interesting for people to watch. So we would always oblige them or humor them and bring them in. So I checked out all that stuff. Now, ultimately, I think what the best one was is motion controls. The Wii, I think, is brilliant. I still like motion controls for certain genres. I still would prefer to play first-person shooters with motion controls if I could. I loved playing shooters on the Wii. Um, And I just feel like without that step of motion controls kind of in the middle, I don't think VR would be where it is right now. You You needed that foundation of motion controls, I feel, to compel developers of VR forward to be like, okay, the interface is there already. Now let's push forward with the hardware. Um, So I feel like motion controls, I know a lot of people make fun of them. Matt hates motion controls, a lot of hardcore gamers. I felt like it was just like cool to hate motion controls if you were a hardcore gamer, whatever the whole thing was happening. No, I didn't get carried away with it and thought it was like the next paradigm shift or whatever. I enjoyed it for what it was, and I've realized that there are some genres where they work wet, where it works well, and there are some genres where it doesn't work well. I wasn't delusional about motion controls, but I think a lot of people still call it a gimmick to this day, and I don't think it is a gimmick. I think it was very important to the evolution of how we were going to play games. Obviously, it was paramount in launching virtual reality, ultimately. So if I had to pick one thing that some people call gimmicks or gimmicky that I think was actually functional and added something to the industry, it would have to be motion controls. All right, our final question for this week's episode comes from Odin5. Hey Shane, with as much money as Nintendo makes, why is it so slow when it comes to first-party development? With the rising cost of major game development, you would think it would just hire more people and make more of the games we all love, like Mario, Donkey Kong, and Metroid. It has been this way for several console generations now. Am I crazy? Is Nintendo just stuck in its ways? Well, first of all, I would never call you crazy because you're here on Sifted, which means you're a genius. (laughs) So you're definitely not crazy. Um, However, I think you might be a little bit misguided. Um... 
and I think you have to compartmentalize things a little bit because what happened with um, with Switch was that Nintendo, instead of having to make games for 3DS and for the Wii U or the GameCube and the GBA, like it had done for several generations where it was splitting its development resources between two platforms, the Switch unified those. And so suddenly Nintendo was making software for just one platform. And that has made a huge difference. Come on, man. You can't see the difference with Switch from all the other Nintendo consoles that came before. There have been so many more games for Switch, first-party games, than there have been for any Nintendo console since maybe the Super Nintendo. I'm not exaggerating. It's a huge paradigm shift. We've talked about this a bunch of times on Game Face and other places on Sifted. I'm surprised to hear you say this, honestly. Um, So, to your point, though... I still, look at how many first-party games are coming out this year. It's like the sixth year of the Switch. And still, by far, Nintendo had way more first-party games than PlayStation or, or Xbox. It's not even close. So I, I don't know where this question is coming from, but I will address one part of it, which is why don't they just put more people on the projects? Now, I hear you. There's no reason the next 3D Metroid game should have taken this long. Metroid Prime 4 shouldn't have taken six or seven years. Now, I realize they started working on it, and then they took it away from that team at Bandai Namco, and then they gave it to Retro, and they started on that. Like the, I, I know the whole story, so people sitting there typing, like, get ready to try to blow me out. Just stop. Like, I know what's up with that game. But it's still ridiculous. There's no reason it should go that long between 3D Metroids. And I can understand too, with 3D Zelda, it shouldn't take six or seven years. So Matt and I kind of proposed the idea of Nintendo making classic style Zelda games with dungeons and more linear, but still kind of open world. And then in between the big open world, Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom style Zeldas, that would be a way to get more Zelda games. But here's the thing, you can't just hire anybody. The, the people have to be talented. And there are other studios that are competing for that talent. So you can't just say, here's a problem. Let's throw more money at it, and that solves the problem. Would you get another Metroid game? Maybe. Would you get another Zelda game? Maybe. But what if they spend a bunch of money on this studio that can't get it together, and they end up canceling the game like they did with the first version of Metroid Prime 4? So it's not a problem that you could just throw money and people at and just fix it if you believe that it is a problem in the first place, which, I again, I disagree with. <laughs> I think the Switch has been amazing for output for first party. So, but I will agree that every console before that, that was the problem. But really the problem was, again, they had this other handheld that they had to support and they were splitting their resources between two platforms. So I'm really struggling to figure out where this question is coming from. Like, why haven't you sent me this question about PlayStation? I mean, we have one first party game from PlayStation this year. We had, what, two last year? We've been, Xbox has been dragging his first party feet for how long now? Sure, its acquisitions are finally starting to pay off. The software is starting to come a little more frequently. But come on, man. Both Xbox and PlayStation are way behind Nintendo. I don't know why you singled out Nintendo for this, I guess. I I don't know why. So anyway, I think I've explained why we're not getting like a Mario game every year. Um, Again, you're right. It's been way too long since the last 3D Mario game. We got Super Mario Odyssey as soon as Switch launched, and here we are at the end, six, seven years later, we still don't have another one. Um, Could they throw more people on it and maybe get it done more quickly? Maybe. But are those people creative? Can they come up with the ideas? Can they design interesting levels? Can they come up with awesome power-up? Who knows? Like, it's not that easy is what I'm getting at. So money, people, don't solve all the problems. You need creativity to make it all work. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Ask Shane Anything. Once again, thanks to everybody who is pledging at $7 or more per month. You guys are the gas that makes this machine run. Um, if you like the show and you would like to see it continue, 
maybe consider bumping up your pledge at patreon.com slash sifted to that $7 tier or more. We appreciate all our patrons, of course, but those people who pledge at that higher tier are the ones who make this show happen. So hope you guys have a great weekend playing Assassin's Creed Mirage or anything else that you might be playing, and we'll see you for Game Face on Tuesday. (laughs) 